Hello, I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Here we explore the exciting advancements in technology-enabled collaboration to excel important drug development. Join us to learn, imagine, question, and help us identify and develop solutions together. Our guest today is Dr. Dawn Matun, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Mercy Bioanalytics, aiming to detect cancer early for patients. She brings 20 years of experience in the biotech industry and has held leadership positions and R&D positions uh, at IntroVision, Life Technologies, Thermo Fisher, and Cell Signaling Technology. Welcome, Dawn. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Ray. Awesome. If you wouldn't mind sort of, you know, sharing a little bit more about yourself and your background and sort of your journey into biotech. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. This is a, a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, the the uh, arc of my career has actually followed a, a somewhat nonlinear path, not necessarily what I would have expected when I began, um, but but really excited by where I've ended up. And, and we can talk more about, uh, about where I am now as we go along. My career, believe it or not, actually started as a high school teacher. I finished my undergraduate degree, uh, was uncertain about what I wanted to do as a next step. And so I spent a few years uh, teaching biology and advanced placement biology in a high school in Southern California. And that turned out to actually be a really uh, formative experience for me. It really helped me hone the craft of creating a, a compelling narrative, bringing a group of people along on a learning journey. And I've found that those skills actually are, are quite applicable to my work as an executive in biotech. Uh, but eventually, uh, after a few years of teaching, uh, made the determination that I wanted to go back to school. And I, I ended up pursuing a PhD in postdoctoral fellowship at Yale, uh, studying uh, tyrosine kinase-mediated cell signaling. Finished up my postdoc in 2004, following the birth of my second child. And then after my postdoc, I joined uh, a startup that was founded by a professor at Yale, uh, and that startup was almost immediately acquired by Invitrogen. So I came into the Invitrogen company through that acquisition. And those who are familiar with the Invitrogen story will recall Invitrogen and uh, Applied Biosystems combined in 2008 to form the company Life Technologies. Life Technologies was subsequently acquired by Thermo Fisher in 2014. So I was with that company through that set of corporate evolutions for about 10 years and had a really wonderful set of, of leadership opportunities initially in R&D as I was coming out of my scientific training and then progressing through roles in program and portfolio management, strategy, and ultimately general management, which is what I was doing following the thermo acquisition. Stayed on for a, a little while after the thermo acquisition and then decided I wanted to return to a smaller, more nimble, agile uh, uh, R&D organization. So moved to the greater Boston area uh, at that point in, in uh, 2014 and, and joined Cell Signaling Technologies, which is a small, is a, uh, was and is a small privately held uh, company focused on developing antibodies and assays. And there have the opportunity as the vice president of product development to lead a team of about 120 scientists, uh, brought hundreds of really wonderful Wonderful products to market, uh, and ultimately uh, was recruited by a former board director at CST to join a company called Quanterex, which uh, had their IPO in 2017. And there I led uh, the research products business. 
and was there when the pandemic uh, came into our worlds. And Quanterix was a company that was focused on ultra-sensitive biomarker detection. We concluded pretty early in the pandemic that there might be utility for COVID detection and ended up partnering with the NIH to take a, a couple of COVID diagnostic tests through the FDA's emergency use authorization process, brought those tests into the, the market. And on the, on the back of that experience, ended up establishing the diagnostics business vertical at Quanterix, which is what I was doing when I was first introduced to, uh, to Mercy Bioanalytics. That was about a year and a half ago now. So that was the series of experiences that, that led to the point where Mercy entered my, uh, my, my uh, arena. Awesome. Thanks for sharing a lot of context and, and history there. Yeah, I had forgotten that Invitrogen and LifeTech became Thermo Fisher. I now recall purchasing lab kits and uh, with the brand's uh, Life Technologies, but it was actually from Thermo Fisher. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, um, thanks for sharing that. And it's also really cool that you mentioned how your experience as an educator had really, you know, formed your you know ability to communicate the story for biotechs or for device companies or detection diagnostic companies. Um, all these things kind of came together for you and this vast array of experiences led you here to uh, Mercy Bioanalytics. So I'm curious, can you describe what Bi Mercy Bioanalytics does? So Mercy Bioanalytics is also actually somewhat like Quanterix oriented around the, the detection of biomarkers of disease at the earliest stages. Uh, we've developed a, a really novel platform technology that has a, a broad utility. Uh, we see utility in, in the setting of oncology, in the setting of uh, neurodegenerative disease, in, in cardiology applications. But our initial focus uh, is in cancer and specifically around the early detection of cancer. You know, we, we've got a view that while there have been enormous advances in the treatment of cancer, uh, at the end of the day, that adds a tremendous amount of cost. It's, it comes at, at tremendous impact to the patient. And we see the greatest opportunity to address the, the public health challenge that is cancer is if we can detect these patients at the earliest stages of disease when they're most amenable to treatment and in some cases where treatment can be curative. That's amazing. Um, so how has your transition to CEO been so far? You know, it's been fantastic. So I am a first-time CEO. Uh, I joined Mercy following a, a, a period where I was doing some pro bono consulting for the company. When I, when I first became aware of the company, I was really compelled by the mission and wanted to do what I could to, to support the mission. So I did some consulting in the background, helping Mercy get ready for their Series A financing round. And the more I learned about the company, and in particular, the more I had the opportunity to interact with the team, I just fell in love uh, with, with what they were trying to do and the, and the way in which they were going about it. This is an organization that practices uh, science with tremendous integrity. There's a tremendous commitment to the, the highest quality conduct of, of clinical science. And unfortunately, that's not something that I see in every organization. So I was really compelled, at so much so that at a certain point, I, I concluded that this was something I wanted to give all of my energy to. 
And so I came across officially as the chief operating officer in July of last year. And then uh, Paul, the the CEO at the time, and I uh, concluded pretty early in my tenure that a a leadership transition was going to make sense. So I stepped over into the CEO role in January of this year. And uh, and it's just, it's really been a, a wonderful experience, a very dynamic period for the organization. We closed our Series A financing uh, about four or three months after I, I uh, stepped into the CEO role. But I am incredibly fortunate to have a board of directors that is uh, engaged, that is supportive, that is very knowledgeable uh, about the space and, and equally committed to the mission. Uh, our board is chaired by a gentleman named Stan Lapidus. Stan uh, is arguably the most successful commercializer of cancer screening diagnostic tests living. Uh, He was among many accomplishments, the inventor of Cologuard, which revolutionized colon cancer screening. He was the founder of Exact Sciences and has been both a a champion and and a really valuable mentor of mine as I've stepped into the CEO role along with the other board directors. So I just I feel incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to lead an amazing team with with that level of of trust and support from the board. Yeah, no, that sounds really really amazing. Um, regarding your Series A, how much did you end up raising, and also who did you raise from? If you can share that. Yeah, absolutely. So we closed a forty one million dollar Series A financing round in March of this year, uh, and as I'm sure you and and certainly your listeners will be aware, it's a very challenging. Capital market at the moment, so yeah. we felt uh, fortunate to get it done. In fact, we closed literally uh, in the days prior to the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. So we our timing was uh, was exceptionally lucky, and we in the end gathered an investor syndicate that is uh, has brought tremendous value to the organization. So the financing was led by. Novalis Life Sciences. Uh, The two key partners at Novalis are uh, Marine Deckers and Paul Meister, uh, both of whom, as it turns out, served on the board of Quanterix, my previous company. So they're they're, uh, investors that I had come to know and, and respect through that experience. Uh, and and uh, Paul and Marine were are incredibly accomplished executives in their own right. The two of them together are the two that architected the Thermo and Fisher combination to create that organization. So these are visionary leaders with a, a long-term investment mindset. Uh, and then we have a number of other uh, kind of traditional VCs that came into the syndicate, Hatteras Venture Partners, Sozo Venture Partners, iSelect, Broadway Angels. And we had a couple of strategic investors, uh, LabCorp and Brooker. Uh, I'm 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 proud of all of our investors. I'm I'm perhaps especially excited that the American Cancer Society, uh, through their venture arm called Bright Edge, also participated in our Series A, and have really been uh, been terrific partners as we've just in in the early days following the the close of the financing. So, you know, it it really. It came together as we as we hoped and imagined, and we we're, we're super grateful. It sounds fantastic, and congratulations on uh, this year's the Series A raise you have. Uh, hopefully, um, that'll last you some time until the next inflection point that <laughs> you'll you. have to um, navigate. So let's kind of dive a little bit deeper into what the company does in terms of the liquid biopsy technology that you've developed, uh, and more specifically, what therapeutic areas you're also trying to tackle. 
Yeah. So, so maybe just start with an introduction to this liquid biopsy landscape. Liquid biopsy in most people's minds will equate with the measurement of circulating tumor DNA. And uh, just by, by way of brief introduction, in, in the setting of a, of a tumor, when cells die, they release their genomic content. And there are a number of companies, good companies, that have been established around seeking to measure that released DNA from the, from the dying tumor cell. And those may look at methylation status, they may look at mutational status, they may be measuring fragment links, they may be doing a combination of those things. But they all fundamentally share the same challenge, and that is in the setting of an early stage cancer where the tumor mass is very small, there just isn't very much of that material available to measure, regardless of how good the, the, the test method is. And so from the early days of Mercy, we've really, uh, we concluded that a different approach was going to be required for the detection of the earliest stages of cancer. It, candidly, it isn't that difficult, nor is it that clinically important to detect late stage cancer. That's not the problem that we're chasing. We're really chasing this problem of detecting cancer at stage one and, and perhaps at stage two, but that, that's our aim. And so we have focused on an alternative biomarker class. It's a class called extracellular vesicles. And a, a brief biology lesson here, putting on my former high school teacher hat, uh, extracellular vesicles are shed by every cell in your body every day, all day long. They're little lipid-bound nanoparticles, and they carry with them the cargo of their cell of origin, both the proteomic cargo and the genomic cargo. So they really are representative of the content of that parent cell, and they exist at very high abundance in circulation because they're shed continuously by all living cells. So they represent a really ideal analyte class for the detection of early stage disease, whether it's cancer or neurodegenerative disease or, or, or another disease state. And so the technological challenge that Mercy has solved is this, the challenge of signal to noise. How do we measure only the EVs that were shed by the tumor cells and ignore the vast excess of EVs that were shed by healthy cells? And so we've developed a, a technological solution to that. We've created a, a, a very robust intellectual property portfolio around this assay, and we have deployed that technological solution against two clinical problems. The first is the uh, early detection of ovarian cancer in women who are at high risk of developing ovarian cancer because of their genetic background and family history. And the second is in the early detection of lung cancer in individuals who are at high risk of developing lung cancer because of their smoking history. Two really, really different clinical unmet needs. Uh, in the case of ovarian cancer, Unfortunately, uh, for women who are at high risk of ovarian cancer, the current standard of care, if you will, the clinical recommendation for these women is that they have their ovaries and fallopian tubes surgically resected. So the very best we can do for these women right now is the scalpel. And we, we feel strongly that there has to be something better to offer these women. There are other screening modalities, uh, CA125 biomarker testing and transvaginal ultrasound imaging, but unfortunately, for those modalities, an ovarian malignancy and a benign mass look the same, can't, can't tell them apart. The assay that we've developed at Mercy can make that discrimination with, with high specificity. So we're excited about the opportunity to advance clinical care in ovarian cancer. The, the situation in lung cancer is quite different. In the, in the setting of lung cancer, there's actually quite a good diagnostic modality. It's called low-dose computed tomography or low-dose CT. 
It's recommended for uh, these patients who are at high risk. It's written into the guidelines. It's reimbursed by Medicare. It has all, all the features that are, are important for a good screening test. Unfortunately, the uptake of that test has been really poor in the intended use population. So among the estimated 15 million Americans who should be getting annual low-dose CT screening, a little less than 6% of them are actually engaging in a screening program. So 94% of the community that should benefit from lung cancer screening is, is not benefiting. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, including challenges with accessing low CT. It requires a specialist appointment. You've got to make sure that you have geographic access to a low CT screening facility. And so it's our view that a, a simple, inexpensive blood test will go a long way towards addressing the lack of engagement in lung cancer screening for patients who are at high risk. And, and hopefully, again, I identify these patients at the earliest stages of disease when, when curative therapy is a possibility. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I wonder if it would be even more clear or specific if you can get a, um, a test done as a control before anyone, before the person gets cancer, for example, just to have, so like, you know, as a standard routine protocol screening, would it make sense to have this controlled data now, like for any person, and then maybe like 10 years or 15 years down the line, hopefully the tech will be amazing by then, but uh, then you'll really get to see the, um, what changed over that time. You're, that you're exactly right. The, the, the concept yeah. that you're describing is actually something that, that is a fairly active area of research in the cancer community. There's a, a term that we use, uh, velocity. And it's, it's exactly as you described. Let's imagine a woman who's at high risk of developing ovarian cancer, but doesn't have ovarian cancer yet. And, and she would engage in a, a routine screening program with some screening interval that's probably somewhere between six months and a year. Well, and just to be clear, when you say screening, is this a blood test or is this like through, different through a of... blood test such okay. as, as the one that we are developing? And, and the importance of the results over time are both the absolute value of the, of the score that comes out of the test but also the, the magnitude of the change from previous tests. So the woman essentially serves as her own internal control, if you will, and you, and you are attentive to the velocity of change in that signal over time. And that, that gives you some sense for the, the nature of the, the, uh, of the underlying disease. That's interesting. Um, you know, the one thing that you mentioned regarding the lung cancer patients not being, being able to access this screening technology uh, due to potentially geography, potentially just having to call a lot of different offices and clinics and to make an appointment, um, maybe involving insurance is complicated, which I'm sure it is to some degree. Um, are you finding there are solutions out there to increase accessibility for these screenings or is there something that even Mercy or its partners are doing to enable that to happen? So, so there are a couple of things. In, in the current standard of care, uh, a patient who is at, is at high risk of developing lung cancer and is interested in availing themselves of, of low-dose CT screening is required to go through a, a visit that's called the shared decision-making visit. And a part of the requirement for that, that conversation with the, the clinician is a conversation around smoking cessation. So currently the only way to access screening is if you are willing to, to subject yourself to the conversation about, about stopping the smoking behavior. So certainly that represents an element of friction in the system. And, and, and for all kinds of reasons, 
smoking cessation counseling is a, is a good idea for, for smokers, right? So, so it's not necessarily an argument against that, but it, it represents attrition on the path to getting someone into a screening program. There's attrition that occurs there. There's attrition that occurs when the patient then has to go and schedule the low-dose CT appointment. Depending on their access to a low-dose CT facility, that may require time away from work. That creates more attrition on the path to getting screening. That's just not a viable option for, for every person for, for all kinds of reasons, economic, childcare, et cetera. And so a, a test such as the blood-based screening test that Mercy is developing, we think goes a long way towards addressing those, those various sources of friction in the system, the various points at which attrition may occur if the blood ideally can be drawn at the time of the physician encounter perhaps coincident with the shared decision-making conversation, then all those opportunities that the patient has to uh, 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 fail to engage in the, in the screening endpoint get, uh, get, at least get reduced. And, and that's our objective, right, is to bring more eligible patients into the screening tent. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's gotten better since the last 10 years, for example. So, I, you know, we're not going to sit here and say, you know, it's, the system is terrible or whatnot. Um, but, you know, there's just so much room for improvement in this system. And I just keep thinking back to, um, you know, how can drug development companies, biotech, diagnostic companies participate? So not just the government necessarily trying to make policy to make this better, but how can these private or even public companies sometimes um, be part of this, you know, patient community and help them? So um, I'm glad to hear what you're working on. And so right now, what kind of partnerships is Mercy actually seeking? Well, it's it's actually a great segue to the comment that, that you just made, Ray. You know, developing cancer screening tests is is among the most difficult challenges that, that a, a biotech can take on. Now, now, why is that? The reason is because if you're going to develop a cancer screening test, you have to confirm with your data that the small number of cancers that are going to be detected out of the large number of people that are going to need to be screened in order to detect each cancer yield a, a favorable ratio of benefits relative to harms. The benefits here clearly concentrated on the few for whom cancer will be detected early. And the potential harms have to be assessed relative to the many. And the harms can take a number of forms. For example, there is a, a um, not a, a significant, but a non-zero harm associated with annual exposure to radiation as part of the low-dose CT screening program that has to be considered. Uh, there is what's called a false positive rate where patients who don't actually have cancer are identified as, as having cancer in a screening test and are referred for more invasive diagnostic workup. Those invasive diagnostic procedures have an adverse event rate that is, is a, a harm that needs to be considered. And so a, a screening test must reach this, this very high bar in terms of performance in order to, for the, the benefits to the few to outweigh any potential harms to the many. And that, that implies a couple of things. One, it, it, it's a capital intensive exercise. It requires a, a significant amount of investment from, from VCs and the investment community. But, but to your point, it also requires a spectrum of partnerships. And those include partnerships with investors, as we've said, partnerships with regulatory agencies, with payers, both CMS and private payers, 
and, and corporate partnerships in order to bring these tasks to the market. So at Mercy, we're investing energy in all of those relationships. You know, it, it's our view that at the end of the day, this is a, a human ecosystem. We accomplish everything that we accomplish through the collaborative work of, of people and investing in those relationships is a, is a critical part of, of how we move the company forward. Um, and we are obviously uh, dedicating ourselves to achieving the highest level of clinical performance for our, our particular tests that, that we can, sensitivity and specificity, uh, positive and negative predictive value being the, the primary indicators. But it is also uh, in our contemplation that our particular solution on its own may not be sufficient to solve this very big problem that is early detection of cancer. And so we're open to the, the possibility that combining our extracellular vesicle-based measurement with imaging studies or potentially other liquid biopsy modalities, if it turns out that our solution and another solution together can identify more early stage cancers than either can alone, and that's what's in the best interest of patients, then that's the path that we'll follow. Uh, so in, in no way does that diminish our energy around advancing our test to its its optimal performance, but we are, are not so uh, uh, driven by our own special solution and our, and our ego around that, that we're closed to the possibility of, of partnering. If that's what's in the best interest of patients, that's our mission. I truly appreciate that, that comment. You know, when thinking about early stage cancers, Oftentimes, just thinking about cancer and defining that, you know, a mutation in cells that is abnormally abnormal and, and continuously growing without terminating your, you know, apoptosis among its cancerous tumor cells. But isn't it true that the immune system has the potential to eliminate those cells on its own? So how early are we talking? Is it so early that maybe it's not going to develop into a disease state and then the body will eventually um, you know, heal itself in a way. Um, again, I'm not an oncologist, so I'd, I'd like kind of, you know, like to hear from you about this comment. No, it's it's a great question, and I'm not an oncologist either, so that's an important preface to the to this part of our conversation. But <laughs> the the modeling studies that have been done, uh, and they're they're unique for each type of cancer. But let's take let's take lung cancer as an example because that's an area of clinical focus for Mercy. There's uh, what's called the sojourn time for the cancer. So how long does it take for the cancer to progress from a stage one cancer to a stage four cancer? And there are a number of factors that influence that. So it, it exists with, with some, some wide confidence intervals. But let, let's call that estimate between four and six years is, is what the modeling suggests. From stage one to stage of that four. Time, right. Mm -hmm. The majority of that time is spent in stage one. And it's reasonable to hypothesize that the, the re part of the reason that the majority of that sojourn time occurs in stage one is because the body is doing what it's designed to do. The immune system has some ability, particularly in the setting of an early stage cancer, to recognize the tumor and, and clear some or all of the tumor mass. And, and that period of uh, almost oscillation of an early stage cancer, uh, it, it, it occupies a significant portion of the, of the sojourn time of the disease. So the opportunity to identify cancers in the earliest stage have to sort of contemplate that there may be some variability in tumor mass, variability in tumor composition as you're going through this cycle of immune system recognition and, and growth and expansion. Understood. Thanks for sharing that. So, you know, I only have one final question before we sort of uh, wrap up here. 
So from your perspective, you know, having been in the process of a, of a Series A and raising money, uh, what do you think about the current economic environment and how is that affecting deal flow? Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's certainly a different economic environment, different capital environment than even two years ago, three years ago, when, when capital was flowing more easily. Going through our Series A financing, I think what, what we encountered in the investor community is that there's, there's plenty of dry powder, there's plenty of capital that's available to invest. However, investor expectations have shifted uh, with respect to the value proposition that, that companies can articulate, the amount and quality of clinical data that's required in order to, to successfully catalyze an investment, the maturity of the organization is just really different than it was two or three years ago. So a, a company that could raise stage A, series A money on a good idea and some some preliminary feasibility data, th those deals just aren't happening in this environment. You really need to have what three years ago would have been Series B data and Series B organizational maturity in order to catalyze a Series A investment in this environment. And so, so I think what we found is you have to be incredibly uh, crisp in the ability to articulate your technology and how it's differentiated relative to the competitive landscape, the value proposition, and, and specifically that it's attached to a large addressable market. So there's a, a meaningful commercial opportunity in addition to a, a compelling clinical need, unmet clinical need. Uh, and the organizational maturity, including the, the maturity and experience of the management team so that they have confidence that you're going to be ex able to execute uh, against the vision that, that you share in the financing. But if those conditions are met, then, then deals are happening. And what I hope to see in the environment in the coming year is that we, we start to see more exits. So more M&A, more IPO, because I think that's what keeps the, the deal cycle healthy. And that's been a, a little bit impaired in the last couple of years. I think we're starting to see signs in the environment that, that those exits are picking up. So we have, uh, we have a lot of optimism for, for what lies ahead for both Mercy and, and for this, this market more broadly. We're all looking forward to that as well. So uh, thanks for sharing that. And Dawn, thank you for your time today. I uh, really appreciate you sharing more about Mercy and your experience in early stage cancer detection through a liquid biopsy. So is there anything else you would like to share with the audience before we conclude here? No, I just want to uh, re-express my, my appreciation for having me. This is really fun. Awesome. And for everyone listening out there, if you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please feel free to leave a comment in the YouTube episode uh, down below. So really appreciate your time. Thanks. Mm -hmm.